I don't know about you, I'm very impressed. They memorized not only John 3.16, but John 3.17. Did you know how important John 3.17 was? So I was very impressed. All right. Welcome to Easter Sunday worship. Easter is the most important day for Christians, for it confirms the claims of Christ and affirms the, all the essential hopes and yearnings of humanity. Pope John Paul II summed up the joy of Easter in this way. Don't abandon yourself to despair. We are Easter people. Hallelujah is our song. Amen. We are Easter people, In hallelujah is our song. You know, these days, we have many reasons to be despair. The Ukraine war is recreating the very horror of World War II that we've seen in documentary in our own time. Pandemic is still raising. Inflation and recession is coming fast and furious. Gas prices are painful, even in Texas. Housing market is out of whack. Even interest rates are rapidly rising. We have many things to despair about. But today, we know the end of despair, end of everything, is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. And the end of our history is a life promise, Jesus who loved to death and forgave us and gave a second chance. Today, I want to share with you why Easter is a good news to everyone, especially everyone who is struggling with the grim reality and reality of the world and the dashed hope. With that, let's read today's text, Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 34. It's a little bit long, so let's read responsibly, quickly. Now that the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Walk alone. They stood still and their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had a hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that prophet have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with the Moses and the older prophet, 
he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. They urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give, give, to, him, give to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They, there they found the eleven and those with them and assembled together. And saying, it is true, the Lord has arisen and has appeared to the Simon. I selected this Luke story of a resurrection for 2022 Easter message because we've been studying Gospel of Luke for three months, and this is a conclusion. Here we see two disciples, unique encounter with Jesus and their transformation. We found them defeated and depressed at the beginning, but at the end, we also found them delighted and energized and dynamic. I pray the same thing happened to all of us today. Amen. I want to examine today's story in, in terms of a three keys. The three keys are travel, talk, and table. Travel, talk, and table. First, about the travel. Verse 13 said, now the same day, that's the first day of a resurrection, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that has happened as they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing. It is not an accident. The first place, the reason Jesus showed up in the Gospel of Luke is on a road. Luke's narratives take us to the road very frequently. For instance, journey brings Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And the road or travel is a narrative setting of a famous you know, parable of a good Samaritan. The prodigal son met his father on the road back home. The chunk of material about Jesus' ministry from Luke chapter 9 to 19 is a framed journey to Jerusalem. New Testament scholars all agree that the travel narrative or journey motif is a very characteristic description and contribution of Luke's writing to the story of Jesus. Later in the sequel to his gospel, Book of Acts, Luke first called the followers of Jesus, not Christians, but people who belong to the way. People who belong to the way. He called Jesus the way. There again in the Book of Acts, we see Jesus meeting people on the road, such as a soul of a Tarsus who was com converted on his way to Damascus. In today's travel, we find two disciples with a massive disappointment on the road to Damascus, I mean, road to Emmaus. They went to Jerusalem about 10 days ago with a high hope, and now they left the city 
with a shattered hope. Why were they leaving Jerusalem? Did they fear for their life now that Jesus had been executed? We don't really know. All Luke tells us is that they were grieving and confused about their recent experience in Jerusalem. They are talking to each other, trying to make some sense out of what happened. And they were going to a place called Emmaus. What is Emmaus? We don't know much about Emmaus. Luke doesn't tell us anything about Emmaus, whether that was uh, their hometown or not. The only thing Luke tells us today is a text that is uh, seven miles from Jerusalem. In another word, Emmaus is not Jerusalem. Emmaus is not Jerusalem, the place of a disappointment and fear. Emmaus actually place or things that we go to after we experience some disappointment in life or some kind of fear. So Emmaus, you know, can be friends. Emmaus can be uh, your counselors. You know, Emmaus can be a Netflix, social media. It can be old addiction. What is your frequent Emmaus? The most important thing we see here today's story is this. Jesus walked alongside them and joined them on their journey. You are not traveling alone in life. God is traveling with you. Amen? Hallelujah. Good news is that God travels with everyone, even everyone unknown, ordinary, like these two disciples of our story today. We don't know much about them. We know only one of their names, Cleopas. But even Cleopas, we don't know who exactly Cleopas. This is the first and last time we see him in the scripture. So these two guys were ordinary, unknown disciples like you and me. But God loves us so much. He travels with an ordinary, everybody, everyday Joe in our life journey. Now, we noticed that they didn't recognize Jesus. It was a Jesus. And that's the one common fact about the risen Christ. His disciples, they didn't recognize Jesus after his resurrection. Do you remember? Mary came to, you know, uh, you know his tomb to anoint him, you know, properly. And then she thought Jesus was what? Gardener. And Peter, when he went to the Sea of Galilee, and then, well, you know, when he saw Jesus on the beach, he thought somebody was asking how fishing went. Today, Cleopas and his companion, Jesus was uh, some kind of clueless traveler. Actually, they're the one who is clueless, you know. Now, why? Why didn't all those people who work with Jesus so closely, you know, three years, 24-7, didn't recognize the risen Christ? Do you know why? Let me tell you why. It's a very important. It's a because nobody ever imagined, fathomed the idea of a resurrection at all. This idea of a resurrection, completely that person coming back to complete life in three days later was so, no, so novel, so unique, so unparalleled to 
anything that we have heard and you know, uh, seen in the life, in history, that disciples of Jesus, first followers of Christ, did not recognize Jesus, the risen Christ. They did not understand the resurrection until the risen Jesus appeared to them ten times according to the New Testament. So, it's not that Jesus somehow disguised himself. They simply, you know, didn't think that, you know, it's, it's possible that they would see him again. And that there he was. Now, do we recognize incognito Jesus who is uh, traveling with us in our life journey? Let me go to the second motive. That is a talk. This second key, the talk between a Jesus and disciple is a main part of our story today. And here, biblical scholars notice that how seriously Luke takes the talk about, uh, Luke takes the, you know, this talk with the Christ that he, to describe the importance and intensity of the talk, Luke intentionally uses several Greek words or Greek verbs to, about the talking. So verse 14, they were talking. The Greek word there is a homileo. Can you see homileo? Out of which we have English word homily. I'm giving you homily right now, the sermon. And also verse 17, what we are discussing, the Greek word is antibalo. Antibalo is to throw two things by side by side. That's actually term for forensic examination. It's a very, very serious you know, rhetorical term. And then verse 27, when Jesus explained things, the Greek word for that is a dia hermano, hermeneo, which means, you know, hermeneo, from which we have a hermeneutic. It means interpret through or construe through. Luke is trying to really say they had a serious, intense, you know, talk. Now, we must recognize the fact that Jesus talked to these two disciples for several hours today, right? Until dinner time. Among Luke's Easter story, this talk is the longest story and received the most space. So what does it mean? We need to pay close attention to this talk. So I'm going to divide this talk in some parts and then go one by one. The first of all, he asked them, what are you discussing together as a uh, walk along? And then they say, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? And then Jesus kind of innocently asked, you know, playing dumb, what thing? And then they say, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest. Chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had a hope that he was one who is going to redeem Israel. Do you notice in verse 17, they called Jesus prophet. Now compare that verse 17 to verse 21. That we had a hope that he was one who was going to redeem Israel. What is that he is one who is going to redeem Israel? That is a Messiah. So do you notice it here? They thought Jesus was a Messiah, but after Jesus executed, they demoted Jesus to Messiah to prophet. Prophet. They thought after crucifixion, Jesus was just another tragic prophet in Israel's history. 
another unfortunate victim of a political injustice, another shattered hope, another case of we had hoped. We had hoped. I don't know about you, I heard this phrase a lot in my pastoral counseling. We had a hope. People came to me as a pastor Paul, I had a hope. Mary and I will get married, have whatever, but she dumped me for the stupid, I'm sorry, why do I use the word stupid? But anyway, you know, or, you know, joke, you know, and then Mary comes to me, Pastor Paul, I don't know what happened, but, you know, Joe is not the right guy for me, and my future is totally uncertain. Well, whatever, you know, I thought my, you know, I had a hope, graduate school, I had a hope, Dallas, I had a hope, whatever. We had a hope, we had a hope, we had a hope. Now, why did they hope die? Why did they hope die? Let me tell you why they hope die. They hope die because it didn't have a cross. It doesn't have a crucifixion in it. Their hope was nothing but a kind of their own imagination and their own aspiration. But true hope is not a sky in the, I mean, pie in the sky. True hope, the hope that Jesus gives us is a hope from resurrection. Hope through the crucifixion and then resurrection. It is real hope. It's a proven hope. Amen? True hope is a more than wish. It, it comes from concrete reality. And good news today is that Easter gives us the ultimate reality in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here in the risen Christ, or in Christ, we see the foundation of a true hope. So let me ask you, is your hope founded in Christ and his resurrection? What's the basis of your hope? If it's just nothing but your own aspiration, watch out. Now, verse 21, continuing. They say, Cleopas and his companions said, What is more? It is the third day since all this took place. And some of our women amazed us because they went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find this body. And, came, and they, they told us even that they saw angel, and the angel said that he's alive. And some of our brothers, companions, went to the tomb and found it just as a woman has said. And they didn't see Jesus. By the way, first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection or, you know, the empty tomb was a woman, right? And then they didn't believe woman. So the two brothers, two, two, I mean, two, you know, disciples went there. And the, here, their story is, they're, they're referring is a John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 3, said this. Peter and the other disciple, that is a John, Apostle John, started for the tomb, both were running, but the other disciple outran John. That means John was a younger, you know, teenager. He's a much, you know, athletic, able. Peter is old and slow. And reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked at the strips of a linen lying there, but did not go in. John was scared to go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. See, Peter is a much older and braver. He saw strips of linen lying there twice talking about strips of linen lying there, as well as clothes that wrapped around Jesus' head. The clothes were still lying in the place separate from the linen. Third time. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached tomb first, also went in, and the Bible said he saw and believed. 
only John see that he came to believe in Jesus' resurrection. You have to recognize that Peter and John did not just see empty tombs of Jesus. They saw strange empty tomb. Strange empty tomb. Why? Not just that Jesus was body gone. Only Jesus' body was gone. You know the linen that uh, taped him? Like, uh, you know, we see the man, you know, uh, uh, what is that? Uh, 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 you know, what is the Egyptian mommy? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, you know, all of a sudden, Jesus disappeared and everything else is in just in the same place. It's like a butterfly left a cocoon. So why John saw and believed? Because of what kind of a tomb robber will steal the naked corpse? Now, let's see here Jesus' reply. That is a critical. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all the prophet has spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with the Moses, all the prophet, he explained to them what was said in the all scripture concerning himself. You know, verse 25, the how slow to believe. According to, you know, uh, James, uh, King James Bible or older translation, which is a little closer to the Greek text, it said, slow of a heart to believe. Slow of a heart to believe. Slow of a heart means that their heart is slow to catch up what their mind already know. Why was it their heart slow to believe what their mind already knew? Today I want, us to, I want you to know the true nature of a faith. You know, up to here, these disciples, two disciples and us, we are same. Like them, we have received the testimony of other people about the risen Christ. Just like them, we heard the rumors about the risen Christ. But these words are not our words, someone else's. And oftentimes, we want to be certain about the resurrection of Jesus. We wish to experience, you know, a resurrection like eyewitnesses. Yeah, I understand that. Don't we all love to be, you know, be there, the one who saw Jesus coming out of the tomb, the empty tomb? Wouldn't you love to touch the wounds on the hands of Jesus like a Thomas? Don't we all want to be so certain about our faith? Don't we all want God to be, God to make us so certain about our life that we'll be okay? about our calling, about our aspiration, about our future, you know, prayer, everything. Do you, don't you want God to make everything so certain for those of us, I mean us, who are really wishing the best for him? I want you to know that if you want to have God with a certainty, you will fail. You will fail. You know why? God would not bind himself to us with a certainty, but only by love. Only thing that connects God to us, God wants us, God connects himself, bind, bind himself to us, or us to him, is only by love. And love, by that I mean, love is more than anything, it's a choice. Love is a choice. On the cross, Jesus chose our life, not his. He chose to love us and forgive us no matter what. 
on the cross, Jesus said, no matter you, even if, what you have done, even if you kill me, I still forgive you and love you. That's what Jesus said. And to that, we also, our faith response is what? I love you, Jesus, too. I love you, too. You know, certainty or solitude is kind of our attempt to be in control. It actually removes the, uh, the capacity of a choice. Certainty or solitude make a relationship kind of automatic. And watch out the automatic relationship because it becomes very wooden, very rigid. That's why marriage is made of a commitment and choice, not just a certainty, not, not, not of a certain, uh, certainty or certitude. I officiated some weddings. And, uh, you know, for me, the most amazing part of the wedding is when they exchange a wedding vow. Because one person making a vow like a Christ. I love you. I forgive you. No matter what, I'll be there for you. That's what they say. You know, the most amazing part of uh, exchanging vow is not the one who makes that promise, but one who believes it. That's what I'm most amazed. Looking into their eyes, I couldn't believe. Oh my goodness, she buys it. <laughs> she buys it. This, this guy is, you know, prom and the same thing. Whoa, I, she, they. They put faith in each other's promise. And after that extraordinary day of a wedding, rest of their ordinary days, they make a choices to make their love grow. That is a marriage. Love is a choice and trust, not certainty and solitude. Certitude of these days, a lot of Christians confuse a certitude as a faith. Solitude is a poor substitute for authentic faith. And solitude is a popular. I have to confess that. It's a popular because solitude is easy. No wrestling with the doubt. No dark night of soul. No costly agonizing over the matter. No testing yourself with a hard question. Just accept a second-hand assumption, majority opinion, a popular sentiment as a final word, and settle into the certainty. Solitude is easy until it becomes impossible. You know, the, I heard a lot of Christians say this kind of empty slogan that the uh, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Let me tell you, that is a cheap faith. That's a cheap faith. Real faith will cost you. Real faith is not a devoid of a doubt. Actually, real faith welcomes doubt and goes deeper with the doubt. Real faith is not afraid of a doubt, unlike the certitude which is afraid of its own shadow. If you look at the Bible, book of Job, Job put the goodness of God in trial. And Job's three friends gave an easy, you know, uh, easy, easy defense of God. Who did God call as righteous? Not easy believers, but those who, like Job, who was questioning God. So, brothers and sisters, let me tell you one thing about faith today. 
Faith is not certitude. It's a trust. Faith is not certitude about what to believe about God. Faith is a trust about who I'm believing. Amen? Now, uh, let me, I, I've been, you know, I recommend, uh, uh, I don't recommend the many, well, I do recommend some books, so, I, you know, uh, a track back. But books that I recommend is good books. Seriously, yeah. I read many, so I, I know there are so many not, the, not so good books that shouldn't be in the print, but this is a really good book. It's a written by Peter N., E-N-N-S. And he, if you can read a Bible tells me so, it's a great, entertaining, and you know, insightful. And the other one he just recently wrote is A Sin of a Certainty. In that book, this is what he said. It is so easy to slip into right-thinking mode that we have arrived at full faith. We know what church goes to, what Bible translation, uh, what church that God goes to, what Bible translation God prefers, how God votes, how, what movies God watches, what books God reads. We know the kinds of people God approves of. God has winners and losers, and we are the winners, the true insiders. God likes all the things we like. We speak for God and think nothing of it. All Christians I ever met who takes their faith seriously sooner or later get caught up into, in thinking that God really is what we think God is. Thus, there is little more worth learning about the creator of a cosmos. God becomes a faith in the mirror. By his mercy, may God does not leave us there. What is he saying? Is a certitude is an easy believerism. And that is not faith. Actually, that is a fake faith, and that is to destroying America and church and our witness for Christ. I don't know. This week, Passion Week, I poured my soul and heart on every day. You know, those of you new in our church, forgive me. You're in the wrong, I'm sorry, this is a wonderful day, but uh, our church people, forest people. I, uh, I had a real blessed blast this week. So much so that I had a hard time to, you know, prepare this Easter sermon because every, every day we did a daily, uh, daily breath. And this, 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 week, this, week's, uh, this week we did something new. We went through all this passion narrative so many times in so many different angles. I ran out of material, biblical material. So this, this week, I decided to do the classic hymns or songs about passion and suffering of Christ. It really blessed me. It really, I hope people, and, but I know how many people checked. Many of you, even the, anyway, let me, let me get, I, I'm out of, out of my script, but if you ask me my favorite uh, song of the week, for me, it's a Charles Wesley, the Tuesday, you know, daily breath, you know, uh, topic, can it be? Can it be? And those of you took the, heard that Charles Wesley song is not only really fresh and sincere and a hard-moving song, but theologically hit the bullseye because the first stanza, he asked a fourth question. Can it be God died? And I'm the sinner. 
Can I receive the benefit? He asked good questions. Four questions. That is a right theology. When you have a real encounter with God, you will have a question, not answers. You will have a questions. And that questions is a deeper than answers. The easy answers we hear. You are not settled with just easy answer, God so love. You ask a question, why does God love me so much to give his only son? You ask a question, true encounter with God, always ask a question. And true theology starts with God's question, not with our question. Now, let me tell you this. Why do I talk about this? Do you notice that Jesus talked to these guys? Long afternoon, several hours, covering entire Old Testament until dinner time. Only thing you have to do, I am Jesus, guys. Don't you know me? That's all it takes, right? Jesus didn't give in. Easy answer. Instead, Jesus tried to ground them in the scripture. Why? Sooner or later, he will be gone from their sight. But scripture is with them. And scripture matters because scripture helps us to put trust in God. Scripture teaches us how much God loves us so we can trust him. This is why faith comes from hearing and the hearing from the word of God as a Paul said in Romans 10. So, application, if you believe, you say amen. Is that true? Amen. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. Amen? All right. Then join, register, sign up for Cornerstone that I'm starting in the May. <laughs> it's our first Bible study. So I really, it's an 11-week study. And ask people who took the Cornerstone, it really helped you. Who know who God is. Whatever God you know, you will rethink about after Cornerstone. I invite you. Why do I do that? That's what Jesus did with his brothers. And God wants us to grow in the scripture. Scripture will deepen our trust in Jesus, will help us to make a right choice for God and life. Let me move on to the conclusion. Yes, I'm already in the third point and conclusion. Conclusion is a shorter, good news. So we can have a great Easter fellowship. So verse 28 they approached the village to which they are going, and Jesus continued as if he was going farther, and they insisted him to join him. So they went to inn. And verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give, to them, give it to them. And then their eyes opened. They recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road, opened the scripture to us. By the way, the burning in Greek is a, a kayo from which a calorie came. So when you do Bible study, you burn calories, okay? That is a false advertisement. But point is, you know, very strange thing happened here is, is uh, up to here, Jesus was kind of an accidental companion, right? Soon as they entered, you know, they, at their urge, they went to, they invited him to dinner. Soon as they entered the table, you know, dinner table, guess what? Jesus became host. 
I bet the Cleopas and his companions said, oh, we are the one who is uh, uh, picking up the tap. What's, the, what's this? Jesus became a host, broke the bread, gave to disciples, and that's when they realized, my goodness, this is Jesus. And as soon as they recognized Jesus, he disappeared. Why? Why? See, you have to ask the question, why? You know, here is why. Jesus actually, this is the last thing Jesus wanted them to remember about him. And this is not just the last thing. It's the lasting thing Jesus prepared for them. That is, join my community. When you come together in the communion table in my name, with my brothers and sisters, that's where you will experience my reason, you know, I mean, resurrection over and over again. Jesus wants us to experience his resurrection, power and presence in our life through the community and communion. Amen? You know, uh, this week I read a very, uh, I found a, 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 a new scholar, a new biblical scholar that I, I really liked it. And uh, I, I felt like, oh, he think like me kind of brother. His name is Eric Barreto. He's a, a, a New Testament scholar at my alma mater, Princeton Theological Seminary. He's a Latino, so I have a double kinship toward him, you know, because there are not many Latino, you know, uh, theologians. So, but he's a really good one. And uh, he's a chair professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. And then he asked this question. He asked that, what is the one thing that most like Jesus? What is most like a Jesus-like thing that Jesus do? Some people say, oh, that's a Jesus on the cross. Or that's a Jesus who is teaching the profound truth. Or it's a Jesus who healed people. Or Jesus who, you know, fed the, you know, thousands of people supernaturally. You know what is the most Jesus-like thing that Jesus do? What makes Jesus most Jesus in the scripture, especially in the gospel of Luke? Eric Barreto got that right. He said, eating. Eating is the ultimate signature of a Jesus act. Nobody enjoy eating like Jesus. Do you guys remember at the beginning of our Lucan series, I went to the three, you know, acronym of gospel and the E stand for eating because of gospel look talks about eating. Eating is not just a social thing, it's a spiritual thing. Actually, whoever you eat with, that's how, you know, you become like. You know, your eating companion matters. In the gospel look, we find the Jesus actually ate with uh, many people, all kinds of people, not only the, you know, high in society, but low in society. Actually, he ate with the wrong people, prostitutes and tax collectors. And for that, he was called a gluten and drunkard. Party anymore. They gave all the wrong name to Jesus. Because what? Jesus loved to eat. And Jesus left a communion for us. And that's why Churches, you know, early church, someone put, you know, uh, blatantly, early church survived on the two things, Apostles' Creed, reciting Apostles' Creed, and the communion. They didn't have a Bible until 300 years later. Bible came, and then 
Even if there was a Bible, they didn't know how to read. Most of them were illiterate. The how in the world they kept their faith and fought against all the heresies. They memorized, reflected the meaning of Apostles' Creed, which is a baptismal creed. And then they practiced communion. The communion. So now you wonder, where is our communion today in the Easter? You know, for us, we celebrate communion differently. I might say more biblically. You know how we celebrate the communion? Original communion is not some kind of a cracker and, uh, you know, Welsh grape juice. No. Original communion was a full meal. You know, it's a full meal. So guess where we celebrate the, you know, uh, communion? At our house church on Friday. That's the real communion, brothers and sisters. And then you want to have a little more religious communion? Come to monthly prayer meeting. Then I'll give you crackers and the grape juice. But I don't want to do ritualistic communion in the church. You know why? That is so individual. That's not bonding us. Do you bond with other people when you take a communion in the church? Jesus gave his body and blood, flesh and blood, for us to love each other as he loved us. That is the meaning of a communion, brothers and sisters. Easter elevate our eating. So, after today's service, we have an Easter uh, banquet. Easter, you know, so we're supposed to, you know, I think we have a better food than usual. So I'm excited. That is a real communion. Let me close it quick. What happened to these brothers? They said, Bible said, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And they told everyone what happened. And they told them the last thing of the story is this. When to told them what happened to them on the way, travel, and how Jesus was recognized by, by, by them when he broke the bread. After encountering risen Christ, they changed, they, they made a, a travel plan. They didn't go to Emmaus. They returned to Jerusalem. When they were going to Emmaus, they were probably going slowly and painfully. Now they are returning to Jerusalem, almost running pace, with a delight and joy and ecstasy. That's what Easter does for us. When you meet and count risen Christ, when you really trust the risen Christ, guess what it does? He will give you joy and confidence and hope bigger than anything you've ever seen. No matter what grim reality the world goes through, we know the world belongs to God who raised Jesus Christ and he invites us to journey with him. Hallelujah! Let's close in prayer. We are Easter people. Hallelujah is our song. Today, if you really, really want to experience this, I invite you, seriously, to sign up with the cornerstone and come to our house church. For that, let's pray.